This episode, we're moving even farther north and once again are giving you a double dose of folklore with two Inuit deities that show you life really is all about finding your inner calm. Especially when that inner calm comes in the form of your better half. And for our fact, we're taking a trip to the movies with a bona fide movie star, mother, author, and owner of the sickest hair this side of Megan Rapino. Supplementing our dazzling audio with some quality LGBTQIA motion picture work here on the Colored Folklore Podcast. Episode 11, The Arctic Circle, Inuit Lesbian Goddesses. Hey, 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 how's everybody doing today? Right off the bat, I am so sorry if my energy level dips uh, a little low today. I have now officially flipped my classroom, and by that, I mean my schedule, because I am working full-on third shift, baby. Got me sleeping during the days, nose to the grindstone at night, and with a neighborhood and household full of noisy pets, hmm, would it be too much to say that it's literally sapping the energy from my soul? Regardless of my exhausted self, the show must go on, as denoted by the track Mr. Mischief by the London Collective All Good Folks. They open up and close down the podcast, as I'm sure you all already know. Giving us our uniquely elegant logo, Arthur has given us an Anansi rendition for the ages, and blessing us each and every episode with her one-of-a-kind culture creations. Jacqueline has given us another beautiful episodic cover image. And this sleepy but perky voice transcribing it all is me, Gri Omenma, purveyor of indigenous legends and obscure myths the world over. Last episode, we were in North America for stop numero tres of our LGBTQIA-centric world tour discussing first American two-spirited legends. Next up, as we've seen in the past, is the Arctic Circle. Now, within episode four, we gave you an Inuit creation tale detailing the deity, the raven. And we also went over some basics about their culture. Now, instead of rehashing what we already went over in that episode, what I'd like to talk about today is something that I knew nothing about until researching this episode. And that is what life looks like for LGBTQIA individuals within the Inuit community. As is many topics that we speak about on this show, this is a complex and multi-layered discussion. So please make sure to check out our show notes for our references and do your own personal due diligence in researching this topic. I am taking hundreds of pages of complex narratives, essays, information, and history involving, I don't know, hundreds of years, then summing it up in like 10 minutes. <laughs> no pressure. Now, this is actually such a complex topic that I don't feel comfortable talking about it outside of just giving an extremely brief explanation about things. I, uh, I went back and forth quite a bit about this one, started doing some summarizing, got my red string Charlie from Always Sunny style charts kicking, and after going through a number of starts and restarts, I'm convinced that I'm missing the mark. I will, uh, I'm going to walk you through my process right quick, and uh, you'll also see how this ties into our fact for later on. Just like other indigenous communities all over the planet, Inuit culture contains certain gender identities and sexual orientations that existed pre-colonialism. They then had their thoughts and cultures overwritten by colonial powers and religious indoctrination and are now undergoing a type of third era moment of discovery where they're trying to access the past in all ways to understand the present and lead to a better future. 
What I mean by that, I want to explain with the weird, convoluted myth that the Inuit have X number of words for snow. Now, this started with Franz the Boss Boaz, the German-American anthropologist that we actually talked about in episode three. He said at the time, hey, the Inuit have more than one word for snow. Bet. Parenthetical, I believe it was four. An amateur linguist, who I need not identify because he don't matter, inflated this value. Parenthetical, I believe to seven, of which I believe the English language also has seven. So uh, look at that. That was then open season on inflating it more and more and more until it became the urban legend that we're still fighting today, saying that they have between four and five hundred words for snow. All of this is just so wrong. Now, because of the nature of the language family, there can be hundreds of combinations if I'm interpreting things correctly. But the way that the information was delivered to the Western world at the time was incorrect. And it came from falsified or flat out ignored sources leading to this myth that really seems pretty impossible to put back in the bottle. It seemed that what they were trying to say is that because language is different, the way that people think is different. So people of different language families, i.e. different race, actually think differently. Goo! That, uh, that, my friends, is a slippery slope we need not go down. Regardless, the point that one of the essays in the book queerly phrased language, gender, and sexuality, a collection of pieces about, well, everything mentioned in the title, makes about this whole event is that one can and could and maybe should if you're doing it responsibly, sometimes look to linguistics for help with a culture. If a word has a presence in a culture, if, if a people have a word for it, it probably exists. Or, or better yet, maybe it's important to that culture. They're giving voice to it. Furthermore, that essay provides a bit of back and forth with this, and I would love to get into that with anyone and everyone. But for the sake of brevity, let's run with this concept as is, because that's what's important to the argument right here. I found three important facts about the Inuit community. Number one, they have distinct words for relationships between men and relationships between women. I'll give you those two particular words during our fact, but just know that they exist. Number two, the Inuit are all about humility. They're not boisterous. That's an identity that's linked to their culture. So, pride may mean one thing, that's good to a certain marginalized community. And pride may mean another thing that's not so good to a different marginalized community. Number three, there are probably boomer to zennial age Inuit that are under the belief that same-gender relationships are not a part of their culture, that it uh, is actually foreign to the Inuit, and therefore it's just not welcome in their community. Now, see, I was surprised by all three of these things. The Inuit are an oral people, so a lot of their ways and traditions and culture are orally passed from one generation to the next. So the things that were destroyed during colonialism? Ah, a lot of it is straight up gone. Forever. Personally, I do not think that we'll know the day in and day out of LGBTQIA Inuit as they lived 500 years ago. Hell, even more recently than that. When colonialism came in, like the way I look at hidden up South America, Christianity came in with a vengeance. So there are many Inuit, as spoken about in episode four, that practice Christianity. You know, I'm fascinated by most all religions on the planet, what they do for and what they have taken away from humanity. 
However, I also feel like we all, as a society, and more importantly, as the practitioners of said religion, need to call out all the bullshit that has been done by whatever religion is in question, whether it's in the present or in the past. And the overwriting of a people and their history is probably pretty wrong. For someone to have their own beliefs, that's all gravy, but that gives no one the right to infringe on someone else's. Now, regardless of how that moral crusade ends up, Inuit practicing Christianity feel that this also means same-gender relationships are wrong. You'll have multiple points of view with this. As long as it's not spoken of, it's fine. That it shouldn't be spoken of or done at all because it's not fine. Or that it exists, and that's fine, just make sure it stays away from me. Does any of this sound familiar to anyone else? Because this sounds exactly like the city that I unfortunately had to grow up in. But, thank goodness, and I've said it before, I'll be saying it again for Generation Z. Because there's a whole new generation of Inuit who are not content with denying who they are for whatever reason. They want to live their life, love who they choose to love, and are hoping to have their voice heard on the global stage, but more importantly on the local stage. As we all do, they want the love and support of their family, of their people, of their village. I know this doesn't do really anything at all in giving you what I've traditionally given as far as cultural information goes in past episodes, but let's just look to number one for what we may be able to say are definitives. We have two terms pointing to the fact that at least in this case, at least with those practicing this particular branch of a large language family, that same gender relationships existed before colonialism. It, it's not completely foreign. That's, that's a pretty hard stop. <laughs> Furthermore, this provides us the perfect segue to our favorite tome of choice this past few episodes, Castle's Encyclopedia of Queer, Myth, Symbol, and Spirit, to talk about the LGBTQIA icons of our episode. Our two deities this week, which I should immediately qualify as probably more akin to spirits than deities, are Sedna, who I've wanted to talk about since before the podcast began, and Kayla Tatang. When first taking a look into Sedna, it actually took me quite some time to find information about Kayla Tatang. You see, actually, let's let the entries do some of the talking for us. The entry for our girl Q is as follows. Amazonian Inuit, parenthetical, or Eskimo. I didn't say that. It's written in there. Divinity, who dwells with her female companion, Sedna, at the bottom of the sea in the company of seals, whales, and other sea creatures. Kaylor Tatang is depicted as a large woman of very heavy limbs. In rituals, she's served by a two-spirit male shaman, dressed in a woman's costume, wearing a mask made of seal skin. Kaila Tatang is a weather goddess or spirit, a guardian of animals, and a patron of hunters and fishers. Word number one, son. Amazonian. I mean, right out the gate, they invoke a word uh, that so many have used and misused in the past when they encounter strong women that I personally feel like they just don't know how to describe. I'm not saying that's what's being done here, nor am I trying to give a diss to any Amazonian, past, present, or future, historical, fictional, or otherwise, what I am trying to do is call out that the world at large simultaneously needs to label everything and does not do the best job at it when it tries. Sorry, the being tired thing, I think, is making me uh, a little cranky. Err, shut up. Let's move along to the entry for Sedna, which, truth be told, 
I was actually going to modify or just include after the story because it kind of gives away a bunch of what's going on today. Instead, I'll just let you know. You can skip ahead in the show notes if you'd rather miss this definition or come back to it and let the story treat you because it really is a treat. The definition for our girl S is as follows. Gynandrous Inuit, parenthetical or Eskimo. Again, that's written. I didn't say that. Mother goddess served by two spirit shamans. Sedna is the mother of wild animals, especially of seals, walruses, and whales, who gives her children to the hunter or fisher if he or she conforms to the hunting or fishing ritual, but who withdraws the game if the hunter or fisher fails to observe her rights. Sedna is not only the patroness of animals, hunters, and fishers, she is also a goddess of destiny, death, and the afterlife. As ruler of the afterlife, she reigns over three heavens of the Inuit, including Omiktu, where the souls of deceased humans and whales live in harmony. Once a young woman who refused to marry, Sedna lives with her Amazonian female companion, Kalutetang, at the bottom of the sea in the company of seals, whales, and other sea creatures. Sedna's rejection of marriage and her wild appearance. Her matted hair is thick with the blood of her children, whom hunters and fishers have killed, have contributed to her identity as a gynandrous goddess. There's just always so much to dissect in these entries. So, first of all, gynandrous, I believe, uh, the literal interpretation of doubtful sex. I think used more in botanical reference, having both stamens and pistols, but when applied to humanity, meaning what used to be clinically appropriate to say hermaphrodite, which is now more appropriate to say intersexed. Besides this book... I don't think I saw that in any reference. Now, I'm not taking away from the possibility. It's just that everywhere, I mean, everywhere else, she's listed as a woman. Mortal and then spirit. She's definitely served by shamans and definitely mother to creatures of the sea. But again, something that I found in very limited references was the mention to heaven. First of all, if you remember from episode four, Inuit, to the best of my knowledge, do not believe in heaven. Quoting Canadian Inuit writer Rachel Adetak Kitswalik Tinsley, There are no divine mother and father figures. There are no wind gods and solar creators. There are no eternal punishments in the hereafter, as there are no punishments for children or adults in the here and now. Hmm. <laughs> so I was very interested, like uh, like I blink meme interested, to see this concept in the good old encyclopedia. Looking it up a bit, I could find three other references. One, some random blog. Two, Edward Moffat Meyer Jr., an American anthropologist from the first half of the 20th century. And, that's right, Franz Boas, who rocked the bells around the same time. So, the way that I looked at it, and I'm sorry, I just didn't give this a lot of credence, so I didn't look too deep. More than likely, one is quoting the other, and I really hope they're just simply not quoting each other. That would suck. However, I'm going to give you this story because it's, uh, it's an interesting paragraph-slash-concept. Directly from my guy Boaz's book, The Eskimo of Baffin Land and Hudson Bay. The Eskimo believe that, and again, written, this is written, the Eskimo believe that the man has two souls. One of these stays with the body and may enter temporarily the body of a child, which is given the name of the departed. The other soul goes to one of the lands of the souls. Of these, there are several. There are three heavens, one above another, of which the highest is the brightest and best. 
Those who die by violence go to the lowest heaven. Those who die by disease go to Sedna's house first, where they stay for a year. Sedna restores their souls to full health, and then she sends them up to the second heaven. They become inhabitants of Omiktu, in which there are many whales. It is not quite certain that the second heaven and Omiktu are the same, as it is also stated that only the lighter souls that leave Sedna's house ascend to the second heaven. Those who die by drowning go to the third heaven. Their souls are very strong and healthy. People who commit suicide go to a place in which it is always dark, called Kumetun, and where they go about with their tongues lolling. Women who had premature births go to Sedna's abode, and stay in Alapak, the lowest world which is under the sea and not far from Sedna's house. It is said that some souls go to Tukwen, a place of which no full description is given. Truthfully, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have given such a... Uh, I shouldn't have given such a tone to the reading, but nowhere else do I read anything like this at all. So, I'm going to leave it right here as it is, and we're going to move forward with what matters most, talking about our girls S and Q. I was originally only going to do an episode about Sedna because I, like I said, I didn't know Kaylor Tatang existed until doing some deeper diving into the subject. I found a beautiful short blog, Imagining Interaction Between the Two, a hashtag Mythology Monday tweet detailing their relationship, and then like uh, four or five brief definitions about Kaylor Tatang, but otherwise no stories. So personally, I put her in the same category as our boy, the Prince of Flowers. Information about, just not stories about. In fact, there seems to be way less info about Q, even. But why I corrected myself earlier about spirit versus deity is given in the quote that we shared earlier. There, there are no gods or goddesses. Sedna and Kayla Tatang are, are spirits, not deities. What makes it confusing, at least in the research that I've done, is that nearly all sources call them both deities. I would love to sit down, as always with every culture and every topic that we have on this show, with an Inuit verse in these stories and myths and thoughts and, and see how things translate. Because I feel that's what's happening here, that we are, a, that we are applying a Western style of thought to concepts that just don't apply. So... Though these two aren't deities in their, their origins, their powers and abilities and contributions to the world allow us of a Western mindset to think of them in that light. Now, at least that is my very kind, very optimistic take on why we're referring to two mythical beings from a culture that tells us they have no gods as goddesses. Because as you'll see in today's tale, Sedna can most definitely use all of the positive vibes that anyone could throw her way. Once, very long ago, there was a beautiful Inuit maiden. However, what captured everyone's attention the most was how she was incredibly strong of will. It's not that she was disrespectful. In fact, she was an exemplary daughter. Every day, Sedna would help her mother with the chores. She would sew, cook, and clean, 
and she would pull in fish for the family to eat and take care of the family's sled dogs. It was the way of the community for a young woman to live with her parents for quite some time, so this too was normal among the village. It was the way that Sedna approached these things that set her apart from others. Sedna held nothing back in letting everyone know that her life was hers to do with what she pleased. She made the choice to do the things that she did. She loved her mother, so she helped with laborious chores. She loved her father, so she helped care for dogs, which allowed him to concentrate on the hunt. She loved her life, so she saw no reason for anything to change. Even when she hit the age where other maidens had long since married and started a family of their own, Sedna chose to stay with her parents. She did not want a husband. She did not want to marry. She did not want to move. So she didn't, which eventually began to worry her parents. She needed to marry. She needed a husband. And there were no shortage of candidates. Sedna was renowned for her beauty and for her devotion. Suitor after suitor vied for her affection, but each and every one of them was met with the same reaction. Thank you, but I'm not interested. Polite, yet firm, curt, and resolute. Her mother tried to gently change her mind. She suggested the best hunter in the village. She suggested the best builder. She suggested the wisest, most intelligent man. Sedna declined every time. She wasn't interested in marriage, and even if she was, she certainly wasn't interested in marrying someone she didn't love. Her father tried to not so gently change her mind. He told her she would have to marry, or she was no longer welcome there. Sedna stared darkly at her father before walking out of the door. It wasn't long before Sedna's parents heard a commotion stirring among their sled dogs. Curious, they went to see what was going on. Sedna was leading one dog away from the pack. With saccharine sweetness, Sedna tilted her head to the side and told her father he was right. She wanted her parents to meet her new husband. As if on cue, the dog sharply barked, and Sedna burst out laughing. Seething, Sedna's father took out his knife killed the dog, and threw the corpse into the icy water. Horrified, Sedna ran into her house, where she would remain for quite some time. Soon after, a mysterious young man arrived on their shores and immediately began to display his skills as a hunter, as a builder, as a provider extraordinaire. He let them all know he was searching for Sedna, whose beauty was known throughout the land. Sedna's mother and father beamed. They were delighted that their daughter would finally have a husband. Before she knew what was even happening, the stranger had whisked Sedna, fighting tooth and nail, into his kayak and away from the only home she had ever known. Traveling together in silence, Sedna noticed birds beginning to appear in the sky. Soon, an entire enclave circled and cawed above them. Turning towards her abductor, Sedna saw that the young man had transformed into a human-sized bird. Smirking, the raven cawed that had he come to the village in his true form, her family would never have given her to him. She spat back. She was not to be given. 
and it didn't matter what he looked like, she would never be his. Infuriated, the Birdman took to the sky, and Sedna seized the opportunity to turn the kayak around and head back to her village. The birds continued to gather until the sky was black as night and rocked the seas themselves into a frothy frenzy. The giant storm could be seen as far back as Sedna's village, and immediately, Sedna's father knew what had happened. Paddling furiously, Sedna's father headed in the direction of the storm. It wasn't long before the two kayaks caught up to one another. Sedna trying desperately to tell her father what had happened, and her father telling her that he didn't care. She had brought misfortune upon the village and their home, and she needed to make things right. She needed to marry that man. She refused to go back to the creature that had kidnapped her, and her father unsheathed his knife. She went to stand, but the storm caused her to tumble from the kayak. Spluttering to the surface of the frigid water, she grasped onto her father's kayak as he looked down at her. She pleaded with him to let her in, and he refused. He told her the only way that he was going to let her in that boat was if she promised to marry the raven. It was her turn to refuse, and he rewarded her by removing the fingers off her left hand. She screamed more out of rage than of pain, and she refused again. He rewarded her further by removing the fingers off her right hand, and Sedna slowly sank into the icy depths. As the storm thundered above, one, even more deadly, began to gather below. As the blood flowed from Sedna's fingers, it began to transform, first into seals, and then into sea lions, and then into walruses, and finally into whales. The mighty creatures of the sea were all born that day, rushing forward from the blood, the pain, and the ire that lay within Sedna. As the young woman continued to sink, she completely discarded her mortal shell. Where once was a human girl was now an Inuit spirit, the mother of all sea creatures, a force of nature, and the manifestation of the ocean's ferocity, the danger of the depths now given form. And once this spirit landed at the bottom of the ocean, she let her existence be known. Sending forth all of her children and all of her power, she capsized her father's kayak, sending him flying into the mouths of her children, shredding him in an instant. The flock of birds, and even the mighty raven himself, knew the power that they now faced, and they turned away from the village, never to return. Concentrating on what unfortunate soul would incur her wrath next, another spirit began to take shape besides her. Just as Sedna was the spirit of the ocean's fury and looked at humanity with disdain, this new spirit proved that the ocean could also be peaceful and provided humanity with life-giving bounty. Kaler Tatang manifest next to Sedna and blinked at her new awareness patron saint of the ocean, protector of humanity, and spirit of the weather, Kaler Titang looked at Sedna and was in awe. 
the weather spirit lifted her hands and brushed the matted hair away from Sedna's face, something that the fury of the ocean would never be able to do for herself ever again. Sedna's anger remained, but it was tempered. Looking at the spirit, she realized she'd never seen anyone like Kayla Tatang. She'd never felt the way she felt looking at her face and feeling her touch. She didn't forgive her father, but he had been punished. She didn't like humanity, but they had been warned. Together, Sedna calming the seas and Kaler Tatang calming the air above, the once-in-a-lifetime storm settled and made way for an equally unheard-of peace that only comes from comfort and acceptance. Kayla Tatang smiled at what she felt their future held. And though Sedna wasn't ready to smile back, she knew Kayla Tatang would be there when she was. And according to the Inuit people of the Arctic Circle, that is just one of the ways that their lesbian spirits of the ocean and the weather may have come into being. Now, I'ma be honest, Sedna has many, many, many versions. I'm not at all trying to be disrespectful to, to lesbians, lesbianism, lesbian spirits, lesbian stories, women, indigenous women, indigenous stories, indigenous lesbian stories, or anything that we went over today. But I wanted to include as much about all of Sedna's versions that I could, as well as include QN on the journey. So there, there, was a, there was a lot of smushing stuff together. If you know the tale of Sedna, if you know one or all of the tales of Sedna, I'm sure you're like, mother, what did I just listen to? And if that's what you're doing, I'm sorry. And, and, and I apologize because I didn't, um, I, I didn't at the top of the show give a, an apology for pronunciations. Um, there are a decent amount that I would be able to find, but, uh, I, anywhere, even like in certain phonetical, uh, encyclopedias or dictionaries. I couldn't piece together Kayla Tatang. So I did, I did, I don't, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if I'm doing that name any justice at all. And I'm sorry if I've pronounced that wrong the entire episode. It's, uh, pretty terrible. But, um, remember, Q don't have a story. So not at least one that I could find. We do have, however, that they are companions. Um, that is the last thing that I wanted to go over about their encyclopedia entries being also my first. I'm not sure about the circles that you uh, have traveled in in your life, but I've seen many people uh, across the spectrum that seem to be uncomfortable in calling a lesbian couple together or wives or partners or just giving them the dignity of, of saying that these two humans are together. Hence, you know, my riff on Amazonian companion earlier on. This person was always called or introduced to this person's friend when I was younger. And I'm happy to see this not even really a thing with the new generation. Of course, I'm not trying to bring back a, a style of otherness that some people are not aware of or pronounce a bias that, that doesn't exist anymore. It's just... um. I think maybe it's odd for me that LGBTQIA couples have to be pronounced uh, at all. A gay couple is a couple, yo. I mean, why do we got to preface it? 
That's what I meant in calling out companion. Now, now I will give absolute and complete credence to, hey, maybe they really are just friends. Do you always have to call out same gender interaction as, as that person being together with the other person? No, of course not. Platonic friends exist across all gender, gender makeups, gender identities. However, I would like to posit that uh, maybe when we can recognize all couples equally, then this 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 may not be something that we we have to to worry about. I mean, you ever think one of the reasons why why it occurs is because humans are really excited about the possibility of everyone just accepting couples as they as they are and accepting love as it is. I don't I don't know. I'm just saying that's me. And for our fact, we're doing something a little new to the podcast. We're taking a look at a living, breathing, ass-kicking human being, which means I'm going to step through her story carefully, and her legacy will be shorter than the past three shows because this is someone who's walking to earth right now, same as you or I. She's a mother, but besides the intro to the show and what I just said, that's the last you're going to hear about me talk about either her child or her partner because anyone that's in the public eye should be afforded the same privacy as any other citizen of the globe. We can celebrate and rock out with the icon, but please let's let them live their life, and that goes double for their family. Jesse Unapik Mike is one of the focal points of the 2014 documentary Too Soft Things, Too Hard Things. She is bilingual, who goes on to describe what this suggestive and interesting movie title is referring to. She explains that Two Soft Things Rubbing Against Each Other is the literal translation of the word used for lesbian relationships. I will butcher this word to the point that I consider it myself disrespectful. So, scroll through the show notes to see how this looks, sounds, and is pronounced. I'm, I'm sorry. I am waving the white flag on these two because you'll see they're, they're complex, complicated, beautiful words that I will disrespect simply attempting to have come out of my mouth. Additionally, it's stated in the film that two hard things rubbing against each other is the literal translation of the word which is used for gay relationships. The documentary follows six people along the path of what LGBTQIA concepts and lifestyles mean to different members of the Inuit community, with those two sets of people sometimes overlapping and sometimes not. So like I brought up at the top of the show, there is term for this, da. So how could a society say something is foreign to its shores if there's already boats gathering moss in the harbor? That's exactly what Elder Pita Inek details in the film, and I quote, we always lived in a tent or shared an igloo. It was never out in the open in my time, but that doesn't mean it didn't exist. The film is furthermore an incredibly detailed look into what Inuit society once was, what it became under colonialism, and what it's trying to be today. We see many that appear in the film and that spoke to filmmakers talking about how the adoption of Christian values is what led to LGBTQIA lifestyles to not only be abandoned, but also demonized in a community that once welcomed them. In 2003, infamously, a spokeswoman for the QIA tried to seemingly speak for all Inuit when she blatantly said, We do not agree with same-gender marriage. This is not part of our custom. It is alien to us. As children, we knew that only men and women can make children together. She then gave a type of backhanded submission at that point, saying that she felt the future generation would have to accept this lifestyle, just like other aspects of white culture, which has already negatively altered the Inuit way of life. Ooh, 
More than a decade later, in 2014, in what has been described as a spur-of-the-moment yet monumental decision, a local leader asked the question on Twitter if a pride flag should be raised in the town square in unity with gay athletes at that year's Winter Olympics as pride flags were being raised across all of Canada. Ah, remember those Olympic Games? That absolutely horrible Russian accent of mine doesn't seem so left field now, does it? Well, the community rose to the occasion and last minute decided to raise that flag for, I believe, less than a half an hour in a type of local, global show of solidarity. That simple gesture sent the town, whose population is more than 90% indigenous, into a near free-for-all, where many discussions were had, including the statement by city councilor Simon Natick, people told me it is not an Inuit custom to be gay, in what I would say is the most cowardly political way to express your own biased-ass point of view. Both sides of the argument began to shout over one another, and it became news locally and then nationally. And then NTI President Kathy Totangi said she agreed with the councillor's position. Jesse was present during all of this and even ran for NTI vice president to help build a more inclusive community in moving forward. Though she lost to the incumbent, she continues to use her voice to help households understand that every family unit is composed differently. Her 2017 children's book, Families, was co-written with Carrie Mikulski and illustrated by Lenny Lyshenko. Direct from the publisher, Families synopsis is as follows. When Talatuk starts second grade, he noticed that his classmates' families are all very different. Some have one mom and one dad, while others live with their grandparents or have one mom. This picture book is about how loving families come in all shapes and sizes. Living her truth, living her life, and helping us all do better at the same, I'm extremely happy and proud that the far north has this lesbian icon, and let me also just say flat out, icon. Thank you to the film for helping show us her path, and thank you to Jesse Unapik Mike for helping to speak for and give credence to multiple marginalized communities. And that's the show, folks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast as we took a look at the Inuit and their LGBTQIA-friendly lesbian deities slash spirits, Sedna and Kalertatang. Come with us again next episode as we make our way over to the Oceanic community where we examine a string of islands and their entire pantheon of bisexual gods and goddesses. Mega big ups to all good folks and the intro-outro track designated Mr. Mischief. And speaking of mischief, Arthur, thank you for our trickster logo. Jacqueline, who let me know that this week is her favorite design thus far, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I can completely understand your backgrounds and foregrounds Oh my God, they're just of legend. If at any point, you, the audience, can think of something that we might be able to help you out with. No job is too big, no job's too small. I I mean, question, any question, big or small, shoot them our way in an email, info at coloredfolklore.com. And if that ain't your bag, you don't dig on the electronic mail. No worries, check us out at the horribly updated social media. I mean, like, across the board. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, my plan is taking longer than I expected for them updates, but I swear they're 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 coming sometime this year. Probably. And if you can't wait that long, not only do I not blame you, but feel free to go ahead and check out our website, the best place for all of our information. www.coloredfolklore.com. Our ally page runs down all of the friends of the show. Our episode page allows you quick access to all the episodes we've ever had of the show. And the support page 
gives you the chance to send some love our way. We appreciate any and all of your time or ears or support. And trust me, we really, really appreciate all them coffees. Trust me, I need them more than ever. (laughs) But what we need more is for you to spread the word. So y'all need to tell your friends, tell your kids, tell your wife, and tell your husband all about the amazing podcast that delivers you content the world over. Myths from remote corners of the world, legends from around the block, tales and folklore from our ancestors. Give a review on your podcast platform of choice. Leave a rating while you're doing the same and just, just try to spread the word. And what we need from you the most, more importantly, most importantly, support local businesses. Check out indigenous businesses, businesses owned and operated by people of color, by those from marginalized groups, buying local, checking out the shop down the block, or heading on over to the bodega across town. Either way, if you got the ability to help a neighbor in need, then you're a true friend indeed. Randy Newman, Mr. Rogers, and Jake from State Farm on the assist.